Well, a good afternoon to you on this cool and crisp January Sunday. For those of you who are new to us, and for those of you who have been paying no attention whatsoever over the past three years, <laughs> we're doing a series on the Gospel of Matthew. And we've come to chapter 18. And chapter 18 is the fourth of the major speeches of Jesus. There are, as I have often said, five speeches in the Gospel of Matthew, which I firmly believe are intended to echo the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new Moses and more. And to the extent that Jews revere the Torah, we as Christians ought even more to revere the teachings of our Lord in these passages, as well as that of the entire scriptures. So we come today to chapter 18. And I just want to set the context a little bit. At the end of chapter 17, when Jesus was talking about whether he should pay the temple tax or not, Jesus made a comparison. He said in 17, verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? And Simon Peter replied, from others. And then Jesus said to him, the sons are free. And what he was saying was, in essence, he was asking Simon Peter, okay, well, there's a tax to pay to maintain God's house. Who pays to maintain the royal palace? The sons and daughters of the king or the subjects of the king? And Simon Peter replied, well, the subjects. And Jesus agreed. But then Jesus said, however, in verse 27, not to give offense to them, not to scandalize them, not to trip them up. I'm emphasizing that because this word is going to come up several times in chapter 18 as we look at it in a few minutes. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Here is a remarkable miracle story that is recorded nowhere else in the gospel, and Matthew just kind of describes it as though it was an everyday event. He doesn't elaborate upon it, but it reveals the character of God, the character of Jesus as God himself. And presumably, Peter extracts the fish. So that's a bit of background to where we are. When we come to chapter 18, we come to a speech which will continue for the next two chapters. The speech is called, by commentators, the discourse on life in the community of the church. Life in the community of the church. So our lessons for the next few weeks are going to be very practical, how we relate to one another in the kingdom. Let's remind ourselves of how this all got started. As you know from Samantha, when she read uh, our passage, it began by the disciples asking who, therefore, is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. Well, why would the disciples want to know this question? Well, as I've just read, Jesus made a comparison between um, rulers and their subjects. And this, no doubt, uh, got the disciples thinking about, well, Jesus is the ruler of a heavenly kingdom. Where do the subjects in the heavenly kingdom rank? Who's the most important? By the way, over the past few chapters, it's been pretty clear that Jesus has shown special preference to Peter, James, and John. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
They seem to be kind of an inner core. And I can well imagine that the disciples were probably thinking, hmm, looks like we've got a bit of a pecking order here in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus seems to like Simon Peter and James and John maybe better than the rest of us. And we know from the other gospels that they were arguing about this. But in Matthew's gospel at the beginning of this speech, community discourse, the disciples come to Jesus and God bless them. They just come right out with a question. Fair enough. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is a question that Jews were asking as well. And we know from Jewish sources that they were wondering who would be uh, the most important in the kingdom that God was going to bring when the Messiah came and when the resurrection took place. And their answers were fairly typical. Uh, the righteous, people who conform to the law. Uh, another answer was those who study the law and who teach it with skill, the Bible scholars and the expert Bible teachers. Others suggested that it was um, the, the martyrs um, or those who were particularly obedient and uh, dutiful to keeping the law, the mitzvot, as they're called in the Mishnah, doing good. Well, those are all pretty good and uh, honorable things, and you might expect that the Jewish Messiah before us this afternoon would be saying the same. But instead, Jesus, in verse 2, he calls to him, he summons a child. Now, this is a little child, and it could equally be a little boy or a little girl. We don't know by the word child. It's, uh, it's in a tense in Greek that doesn't reveal the gender. Um, so he set this little child in the midst of them. And then he says, I am telling you the truth, unless you are turned and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, will humble him or herself as this child, this is the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. It isn't so shocking in our culture that Jesus would bring a child in front of the disciples. I mean, we just had children come to the front of the congregation and acknowledge they're being special, and we prayed for them. But that tradition actually emanates in part from the example that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. Jesus was among the first, and it was rare in the Jewish culture of the first century, for highlighting children. Unless you are turned, Jesus says, and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They want to know who be the greatest. Jesus takes this child, and we'll talk about what a child means in a minute, but it's important to observe that Jesus says, let's leave aside for a moment the question of who's going to be the greatest, and let's make sure that we get in in the first place. And then Jesus says the same thing that he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which was confusing to Nicodemus. You have to become like a child. That's not an easy thing for an adult to do. Nicodemus didn't understand. Nicodemus said, well, Lord, how can a man enter again into the womb of his mother and become like a child? This is very counterintuitive. And humanly speaking, it's impossible. But here is Jesus saying, unless you, you and me, are turned, are reverse, uh, turn around, and become like children. You will never even enter into the kingdom of the heavens. 
And then Jesus elaborates a little more on what it means for him to have chosen a child. We'll talk about it a bit more in a second. But it certainly includes humility. Whoever, therefore, will humble him or herself as this child, this is the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Well, what did Jesus and what did the culture mean by children? Because that's what we are to become. So let's decide what we're supposed to emulate about these children. Nicodemus was right. We can't enter into the wombs of our mothers again. So what did Jesus mean? And the question really boils down to who children were in the first century in Jesus's day. They were people of low status. They were uh, considered insignificant. Sure, parents love their children, but in terms of power dynamics and participation in the culture, the dictum that I sometimes heard, even when I was a child, that children are to be seen and not heard, was the rule of the day. These were little nobodies. Um, you know, children were just powerless. If, if, if anything in public, they were kind of a distraction. Children were invisible. They were not regarded. And this is actually affirmed in the context. When you look in the Gospels at passages pertaining to children, you remember the disciples actually were barring the children from coming to Jesus. And Jesus elsewhere says, oh, allow the little children to come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Jesus says the same thing of us. We are to turn and become like little children. It's a matter primarily of status and disregard. It's becoming one of those inconsequential people, one of those losers, one of those um, uh, insignificant, lowly types on the social norm, on the economic scale. It's tempting to name who those kinds of people might be. I want to ask you in a minute, and I better do it quickly before I forget. Uh, what kinds of people uh, you think are invisible or whether you have ever experienced invisibility. I can think of um, people in the hospital, people in prison, uh, people with, uh, on the street. There's a beggar. There's somebody lying on a, on, a, on a cold vent, and they're asking for money, and they ask you, and you just would, you're embarrassed because you don't have the money. You don't know what to do. You feel uncomfortable by this person's awkward situation. And so you ignore them and you walk by as though they're not there at all. That's the kind of person that Jesus is emulating as an example for us. Unless you become a nobody, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the words that Jesus uses in verse 3, unless you are turned and become like children, are in the imperative, turn and become. And the particular tense that they are in the original language leaves room for this to be something that happens again and again. It's something that you don't just sort of decide, oh yeah, I need to remember to be humble and to be uh, mind myself as somebody of very little importance, no importance at all. But it's, it's something that, has acted, that acts like a kind of a rule of life, as one commentator has said that the followers of Jesus are to make a rule of life in significance and humility. Story is told of uh, 
I doubt it's true. You know, you read in these illustration books and, and, and you sometimes sort of think, ah, that's probably not true. But anyway, the story is told, read the code language, it's probably not true, but the point is nonetheless the same, of a pastor who won an award for being the most humble pastor in the state. And he actually received a medal for being the most humble pastor and the congregation applauded uh, probably him at that point. And uh, he received the medal and um, the next week he came wearing the medal and they took it back. <laughs> Well, I can imagine that the pastor's situation would be, well, if I don't wear the medal, people are going to sort of think I wasn't appreciative. But anyway, he came showing up with the medal. I am the most humble pastor in the world. And they just, they took it away. But anyway, notice the kind of inversion that there is here. Insignificance is significance. And you have to be insignificant in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Over the past few weeks, I've been talking about how we enter into the kingdom of heaven and stressing the importance of faith. One thing that children do have is trust, uh, especially with a person they know. I remember when our child, our oldest son was a toddler, uh, he was quite a, a, a rambunctious kid and I played with him a lot. And one day I remember he was up three or four flights of stairs, was here at the college where we lived. And he said, daddy. And I just caught him out of the corner of the eye and he was flying off the steps in my direction. And I just turned around in time to catch him. Sometimes, you know, we played jump and catch. But he didn't tell me we were playing jump and catch at this moment. And I had to say to him, Dave, don't do that. I wasn't watching. So there's an element of faith and trust that comes with a child that belongs to their status as insignificant. A lowly beggar isn't going to say no to the money that you offer. They're probably asking, right? And so this idea of putting your trust in Jesus is something that accompanies a lowly status. People who are proud are the least likely to be seen in heaven because they're relying upon their own merit. They're too proud to accept help. And they're part of this world's power game and ranking order. Jesus says it's completely the opposite. Jesus says that these people should humble themselves as this child. They should consider themselves lonely, I mean lowly. They should consider others more important than themselves. Well, at this point, I just thought it would be interesting to ask who this person is, or whether maybe you yourself have ever been part of a communal setting where you have felt invisible, unimportant, inconsequential, Anybody here want to share a thought or a memory about where you or someone you know was obviously invisible in a social setting? And what were the circumstances around that? Pulling kind of a surprise here and turning to the congregation asking, but I'd love to hear from you. Have you ever felt invisible or know somebody who has had that sense? And what were the circumstances or what was their situation? Okay, yeah. So if you don't mind just removing your mask, yeah, thank you. I'm gonna give you the mic. Yeah, I entered the math I entered the math department here and I wasn't in like the PhD stream or whatever. So it was just like just the master, like I don't know, like then I didn't have 
I wasn't one of the special people or whatever. And it just like, you know, felt invisible, like not really. So actually, yeah, so not, not nothing dramatic. It's just like in general, like, oh, I'm like kind of invisible. That's great. So you weren't one of the PhD students. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Good. Anybody else? Him. I think sometimes, for example, in a group of soft locals, like uh, say in the UK, sometimes international students, especially if they are quite introvert, can be quite invisible. Like there's a group that are just talking and they, yeah. Yeah, international students, Sandra. I was gonna say as a woman, I think gray hair makes you more invisible amongst our population. Okay, thank you. Very helpful. Patricia. Just as the opposite side to Sandra, I used to uh, manage Starbucks stores in Montreal and I'd been managing for probably four or five years and I was training a gentleman, um, but we had a customer come in and ask him a question and I replied being the manager and he continued to ask all the questions to this gentleman who was, it's his second day on the job, didn't know anything. And even as I continued to answer, the questions went to the man. But I mean, I was probably 22 and female. Okay, well, that's, that's great. Thank you. Well, I think it's worth thinking about. Um, and I certainly would, in our context, I think the whole notion of, of international students, we can lump them all together, you know, oh, you, you are the international students, and it, it's, it's well-meaning. I've noticed that the Wycliffe sometimes um, in the residence, you'd have theology students whom the faculty knew, and then there were all those other students who were grad students, and many of them were international students who had um, Chinese names or a name that was hard to remember, and people just, you could just kind of see um, some of the faculty and some of the other students just kind of block them out. Oh yeah, they're one of those people with a name that I have a hard time remembering and it's hard to tell them apart because um, we look the same to them and they look the same to us. And then you just kind of, they, they just sort of morph away. It's a sad thing and we ought to avoid it. The first thing is to become like one of those people ourselves. And if you have that mentality, I'm one of those nobodies, then you're in good company with everybody else, right? One of the other things that was noted about children that I thought was helpful was that they're not allowed to speak and they're thought to obey. And so if you're not allowed to speak and you're thought to obey, you probably make a pretty good follower of Jesus because you're not always piping up and giving your opinion. Your job is to listen. And you're not trying to run the show. You're just, you're just a little nobody. And whatever Jesus tells you is probably good enough. So those are good qualities about being a children, about being a child. Thank you for your insights on that. Now, in verses 6 to 9, Jesus uh, switches gears a little bit and broadens the scope of children. He stops talking about children. Well, he continues talking about children, but he changes the metaphor to little ones. And he talks about what I've called the crime of tripping up little Christians. Jesus goes on to say, anyone who trips up the faith of one of these little ones who believe in me, 
it's better for him to have a millstone pulled by a donkey fastened around his neck and to be sunk in the depths of the sea. You know, this is kind of one of these mafia things where your feet are put in concrete and you're set on a boat and, <laughs> and eased over the side of the boat and down you go. Jesus could not be speaking more forcefully here. And so here, the crime is of tripping up one of these little ones, which now presumably include us. So tripping up another Christian. Because, and they're, they're Christians, they're not just everyday people, or they're not, they're not um, non-Christians, although you shouldn't trip them up either. But Jesus is speaking specifically about believers in the context of the community. This is a speech given to the community of believers. He's speaking about one of these little ones who believe in me. The word trip up comes from a Greek word that is the same in English as scandal. Scandalizo, it's called. And scandal originally meant to trip somebody up. But the word came to mean, and this is, I think, relevant in our context, the definition in Merriam-Webster dictionary for a scandal is when a member, uh, when a leader in a religious group does something that causes disillusionment in another Christian. Uh, the kind of scandals that we hear about all the time. When a leader does something that um, causes disillusionment or trips up somebody um, who belongs to that faith community. And those are notorious examples. But in more generally, it just means um, derailing another person, derailing specifically the faith of one of these little ones, just so much as one of these little ones. And the analogy that Jesus uses here of a millstone, and if you go to the city of Capernaum today, you can see, still see millstones set off to the side. And they are big. Uh, they're about this big, and they've got a hole in the middle. They're about the size of a trailer truck tire. So Jesus is speaking very powerfully here. And so the metaphor of a child moves on to the metaphor of little ones. And Jesus, at this point, in verses 7 following, I think, kind of deviates a bit and wants to talk about stumbling blocks in general. And he says, woe to the world for its stumbling blocks for its faith derailments, for those occasions where Christians are tripped up in one way or another. And here Jesus holds together divine sovereignty and personal responsibility together, for it's necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom those stumbling blocks come. You think of Judas. Jesus knew that a Judas figure had been appointed from the beginning of time. But nonetheless, Judas was held responsible for his actions. And he was the one who was a good example of tripling, tripping up even our Savior. And Jesus goes and gives us an example to ourselves. And it seems as though he's deviated there from tripping others up, and he has to ourselves. He says in verse 8, And if your hand or your foot trips you, impairing your faith, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's better to enter into life maimed or lame than to have both hands or both feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye trips you up, impairing your faith, pluck it and cast it from you. For it's better to enter life one-eyed than having two eyes be cast into the Gehenna of fire. Why is Jesus talking about not being a stumbling block to ourselves? Well, many people think, and this is kind of the, what the majority of commentators say, they say there's a link 
between um, the offenses that you cause to yourself and those that you cause to someone else. So your own um, thorn in the flesh, as it were, your own weak spot can kind of spill over such that other people can see it and it affects them. One commentator talked about how um, maybe somebody with um, uh, kind of a, an erotic obsession uh, might inadvertently say things and behave in ways that uh, spilled over such that other people became aware of that and it was a stumbling block for them. Jesus says, get rid of it, cut it off, for it's better to enter heaven maimed than to go through life whole and hellbound. Jesus talks about hell here. This is a reality. Earlier this week, I was reading advice from Tim Keller on how to preach hell to a congregation. Not an easy topic. But Keller, but Keller said that if you don't talk about the things that we're uncomfortable about, other softer doctrines that we value also disappear. In other words, in this case, like hell talks about, it involves the wrath of God. It takes sin seriously. And so the good news is only good news against the backdrop of the badness of sin, right? Heaven is good news because there is a hell. Salvation is a good thing and is good news because there is loss of salvation. Jesus said more about hell than he did specifically about heaven. And I don't think it's our place to uh, pontificate or think specifically about the details pertaining to hell, but I think it's important that we affirm the reality of it. And as Becky Pippert has said in her book, Reasons for Hope, she says, it's really important to maintain this because um, it takes sin seriously. If you love somebody and they're addicted to alcohol, you just, you just want to you want to yell at them every time they go near the bottle because it's hurting them. It's damaging who they are, and sin has that effect. And Keller, I think, rightly said that um, there is no loving God without hell and the hatred of sin. I'm paraphrasing rather uh, loosely, but it's in, it's in the notes. My friends, there are things that trip us up that we are called here to cast off and to get rid of. My mind went, I don't know where yours is, is going, but you can perhaps think of them. My mind went to the things we often watch on, the, uh, on what used to be the television, which is now more commonly the computer. My daughter showed me, told me to watch a show and I got the name of it wrong and I began to watch the show the other day. And it was, I mean, just, there was, it was from beginning to end shooting people so that you know, blood was spatting out the black of their, back of their heads. I think there must have been like 50 people killed in the, in the short time that I watched it. This isn't good for your soul. Uh, the erotic stuff, you don't have to go looking for it anymore. It comes knocking on your computer window with a little invitation. Sometimes you're even tricked into going into a site. Get rid of it. It's killing you. And it keeps you from finding eternal life and from entering into the kingdom. Get rid of it for your sake. Get rid of it for other people's sake. Jesus is being very graphic here. He's saying, cut it off. 
People debate about whether you should take it literally or not, but I mean, there were eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. So at least in some cases, it was literal. This is important stuff because of the seriousness of sin and because of the reality of heaven. That's the downsize. But it's important because of the joy of salvation and the reality of eternal life with God. Get rid of it. It's as simple as that. Only it's hard. But it must be done. I had thought, instead of taking up the offering today, of having us um, get a little um, piece of paper to wrap around our fingers and to write on the inside something that we're planning to get rid of. And then we'd have each person put that little paper in the, in the offering basket, and we would take it here, and we would light fire to it. We're not going to do that, but I invite you to do that in your mind. Think of one thing that you agree that you will get rid of because it's tripping you up. And it's affecting others as well. God, help us to rid ourselves of those things. And I think the computer and the internet rank pretty much near the top. What we tolerate is enough to make the previous generation just shudder. And Hollywood knows that next year it's got to be gorier and more explicit than last year in order to hold people's attention. And we get sucked in. Get rid of it. Finally, in verses 10 to 14, Jesus goes on with an analogy. He talks about being a shepherd, but he begins by saying, see that you don't despise even one of these little ones. And then he gives us another reason for not despising one of those little ones. They have friends in high places. It's the opposite of our world. If you're significant, you have friends in high places. Then the kingdom of heaven, if you are insignificant, you have friends in high places. It was thought in the first century, so far as people can tell, and they differ about this a little bit, the rabbis, generally in Jesus' time, believed that the angels could not see God. He was too holy. And so Jesus seems to be talking about a special kind of angel here. And there are angels who can actually see God. And these are the ones who tend to the little ones who are in danger of being tripped up. Don't despise even one of these little ones, Jesus says in verse 10, for I say to you that their angels in the heavens are always seeing the face of my Father who is in the heavens. Jesus ends the paragraph in a similar way. He talks about there's no desire in the face of your Father who is in the heavens that even one of these little ones should perish. The picture is that of angels watching over the little ones, us children, and they are beholding the face of God. God is in effect saying, I'm glad to know that you have an eye on them. Your eye is on me. My eye is on them. Your eye is on them. So there's a direct link through these supernatural beings about looking after these little ones, looking out for the little ones. And then Jesus draws an analogy of a shepherd. He says, what do you think? If it so happens that a man has a hundred sheep and one, Notice that I've underlined one. There are about seven or eight cases of one in this text. So much as one is not uh, sufficient. If it so happens that a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go in search of the one gone astray? It's only a sheep. Still got 99 left. What's the big deal? It is a big deal to God. You are important to him. And if it so happens that he finds it, I tell you for sure that he rejoices over that one more than the 99 who didn't go astray. 
So there's no desire in the presence of your father who is in the heavens that even one of these little ones should perish. If you look in the notes, you'll see that part of the background is uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, where there are shepherds who are kings of Israel who aren't doing their job, and um, God rebukes them. And he goes on to tell us what it looks like to look after children. And let's think about this and come up with a bit of a list as I, as I come near to the end. So we're to become like little children and to humble ourselves before God in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but we're also to treat other little ones with regard. And that would include such practical things as giving drink, feeding, visiting them when they're in the hospital, uh, bestowing dignity upon them, looking after their needs. Examples of the little ones that I thought were apropos would be things like, and the context isn't Christian, but things like adopting a child, big brother, big sister, uh, finding out who in your community is disregarded and treating them particularly as important. And the other danger is, uh, well, and, and the other positive thing, in addition to the list, of course, is not despising, but going and finding the stray. Uh, one person from the congregation, oh, they wander off. It's not a big deal. We still got how many? 59, 65, whatever. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. And as I was preparing the sermon this week, I couldn't help but think of some of the people that are no longer with us that were and asking myself, what have we done as a church to follow up on some of those people? I want to conclude with um, an excerpt from a movie. It is a, a prototypical little person. It's the movie from the movie Elephant Man. And in the movie Elephant Man, it's the story of a fellow whose name is John Merrick. Uh, in the book, he was actually called Joseph Merrick. But he is severely deformed. He has a head that's at least twice the size of a normal head. He has giant tumors on his forehead. His nose is deformed, and people, when they look at him, uh, are more inclined to scream than not. He's in a freak show. He's in a circus in 19th century Victorian London. And a doctor, uh, Dr. Treves, uh, Frederick Treves, uh, shows an interest in the man and examines him. And at first, Treves is kind of wanting to score points with his doctor, look at this anatomical specimen that I found, how interesting. But Treves shows an interest in the man and, and treats the man with dignity. And I just want to show you um, a, a clip from the passage, and I'll set the background before you hit the button, Stephen. Um, the so-called elephant man has been invited to be a permanent occupant of the hospital. And um, there's a board meeting that goes on about whether he should be allowed to remain in the hospital because he's incurable and he's taking up space. And uh, the man in the middle and the man on the left, which is Anthony Hopkins, are in favor of um, bestowing dignity upon the elephant man. And in the midst of the scene, it's the daughter of Queen Victoria who comes in and who, uh, who, who changes the paradigm. Um, watch for about four minutes. <laughs> 